based of a magazine article, the suspects wore Louis Vuittons. Sophia Coppola, for her next film, decided to take a rather unique approach, moving away from the social satire lost in translation and somewhere, as well as the historical epic, if perhaps unintentional, of Marie Antoinette. Instead, she decided to experiment not only with digital filmmaking, but a much smaller scoped film. As with The Blink Ring, it took in the very modern-day story of a group of obsessed teens with celebrity who decide to go on their own robbing spree as they broke into the celebrities' houses they admire, not only stealing jewellery and money, but also the lifestyle as well. Here, Sophia not only decided to work with a different filmographer, for this film she worked for with one and only time with filmographer um, Harris Cervedes who unfortunately died of brain cancer before the film's in post-production. But at the same time, this was a film that showed Copia once again trying to reinvent herself as a filmmaker. I'm Owen. I'm Kim. And you're listening to Moves and Tea. Let's take it to the booth. season continuing our re-evaluation of the Sophia Coppola filmography. Tonight we are talking about The Bling Ring from 2013, um, a satirical crime film, according to Wikipedia at least. Um, as we said already, this film is one of several films that was based on magazine articles at the time, as for some reason filmmakers just seemingly ran out of books to adapt or films to remake and started moving on to doing magazine articles. First off, we had Michael Michael Bay uh, doing Pain and Gain and uh, Sophia Coppola was obviously adapting uh, the, the Vanity Fair article The Suspects Were Louis Vuitton, uh, which was written by Nancy Jo Sells and dealt with this real-life gang known as the Bling Ring. And this is, uh, as I said, this is a film which really sort of marked out a different change in direction for Coppola. Not only is it moving away from her usual sort of themes, but it's doing something perhaps a little more mainstream. It can be viewed as uh, not only with the casting of Emma Watson, um, but also by having a more direct and accessible story than something as abstract as we've come to expect from her. Um, but tonight, we uh, it's not just myself and Kim. Uh, we have got a special guest. I mean, Kim, do you want to introduce who we have got joining us tonight? Yeah, today joining us is uh, Norman from Flick Hunter. Yes. So, welcome. Thank you very much. <laughs> Good to be back. Yeah, because you obviously uh, joined us previously on our Del Toro season, talking about Pan's Labyrinth, and now we're back again talking about the Bling Ring. It's kind of ironic that both times that you've been on it's been like the director's breakout film into like a more mainstream appeal that uh, you've come to talk to us about so first off i mean obviously bling ring 
as we said about it, it's a very change, big change in direction. And how did uh, we all sort of come to this? Was this like, so like our was this like your first film, Norman, or was it uh, sort of like third or fourth in the couple of filmography that you saw Bling Ring? Uh, third or fourth. Uh, my first would have been Virgin Suicides. Um, and then I think I might have seen Lost in Translation second. Um, so I think this was this was the third, I think, or maybe the fourth. I'm not really sure. Third or fourth. Okay. And obviously, um, I mean, Kim, you've obviously been enjoying my, with myself we've obviously been going for this whole season so we've seen the many moves and different shifts in tone for a couple i mean how did you find a couple of change in direction here i mean obviously she's going for more mainstream appeal with the bling ring it's not abstract and uh it's certainly not sort of using a lot more sort of style over substance so well i mean the bling ring is a change in pace, right? It's a lot more, you know, something's happening all the time. There's always something going on. There's more chit chat because it's always like a bunch of girls with that one guy. And it's like, <laughs> so, you know, there's a lot more things going on. But at the same time, you know, Sofia Coppola still has a lot of, you know, the things we've seen before, you know, like, you know, a section of someone's life or just the fact that, like, there are still moments of silence and there are still those still shots and all those things that really define what she does. But in this one, I, I mean, because I guess the setting is more, uh, I don't know, I mean, uh, more, I guess, more popular in that sense. Like, it's more in L.A. and there's more, like, action and more, like, you know, just more dialogue in general that it's definitely more appealing for everyone else to accept. Yeah, I mean, certainly the focus this time really is, would we say it's like celebrity culture because it seems to be this theme that runs throughout the film whether it's the kids obviously obsessing over these celebrities they're robbing at the same time we've got with the girl's mother who's there pushing this almost worship of celebrity with her homeschooling i'm using that in air, air quotes to say the uh, loses term because she's basing all her teachings off the secret um which i don't know if you guys remember that self-help book but it was all the rage back about I don't know, about 10 years ago now, it seemed that we couldn't shift copies quick enough for mm-hmm. it, but it's, uh, it is pretty direct. So it's kind of bizarre that she passes that off as, uh, as, as qualifies as homeschooling. So. Well, I think Sophia got that from an actual reality show that one of the girls, um, the one that's one that's based on Nikki, that's actually what happened. They had a show called, um, pretty wild. And that was on E, and it was based on the homeschool that the mom did, who was uh, a former uh, either Playboy, Playmate, or Penthouse, one, some type of model, um, pinup girl. And, and that's what she did, that she had the kids, and she, had, she taught them based on this show when she wasn't, you know, feeding them Adderall every morning to get them going. <laughs> yeah, I mean, certainly um, Alex, Alexis, uh, as you said, it she, because um, they change all the names a lot of the characters here. So um, Alexis Nears, who here in the film, as you say, is played by Emma Watson. Uh, she's rebranded Nikki Moore. Um, yeah, the girls, when they found out, I mean, she was like strung out on like an A to Z of different narcotics and stuff. There's a really great vice profile about her. And she's like saying, yeah, we were just strung out on everything from heroin to crack and um yeah it's it's kind of like really sort of screwed up and it's really sort of bad timing the fact her mother like pushes to get this reality show made and then suddenly after the pilot episode films your daughter's caught up in a 
celebrity burglary <laughs> scheme. Um, but just as the sort of characters, just looking at the characters themselves, I mean, it obviously starts off with Kate Chang's character, uh, Rebecca, and Israel Buzan's um, Mark, the token male of the group, who, for surprise, surprise, for an all-girl group, he's not like the token gay guy. He's just this random straight guy that seems really out of place, but somehow slots into this whole scheme. And the two of them initially, they rob a... They rob the house of a, um, one of their classmates, and then they sort of graduate to... Um, I believe it's uh, Paris Hilton's house is the first one that they, they break into, and it sort of sparks this whole sort of craters they sort of brag about the fact what they've done and their friends are sort of drawn into the drawn into it so for obviously for the for our initial two characters it's this appeal of fame and having status and having a lifestyle because we see them on the beach and they're talking like oh yeah i want to have a perfume line i want to have a lifestyle and then with the other girls they already have that sort of lifestyle already so do we think that with the different members it's sort of varies what their sort of appeal of doing these robberies was or was it all just the general appeal of celebrity that sort of drove them all rebecca's the leader obviously of the whole crew and um i thought it kind of started with um the term she used was checking cars where they go up to a car and see if the door's open right and if the door is open they go in and grab some stuff and like a wallet or money and i think they found coke in a car pretty early on um, and when nothing happened, um, I think that's kind of how they got going. And then um, the boy, uh, Mark, said that, um, you know, his friend was his parents were away somewhere. And a uh, lot of a lot of open sliding glass doors like uh, uh, warning <laughs> everybody put a piece of wood or something in your sliding glass door so people just can't wander into the place. I think that's how it all started. And it is a cult of celebrity. They're on TMZ. They're on a yeah. site, I don't know if even around anymore, called D-Listed. Mm-hmm. And a lot of, well, Lindsay got another DUI type thing, right? So, and they're into the hills and all that type of stuff. So it's really the cult of celebrity they're all um, following and involved with. I mean, just to touch on what you're saying, Nathan, the fact that all these doors are open. I, it really surprised me, the fact you've got these celebrity houses that are spending like millions on a mansion, but zero on an alarm system. You Well, I listened to a a talk from Sofia Coppola, and she was talking a lot about these are in gated communities, supposedly, of security driving around. So anybody out of place is supposed to be checked. But I guess these kids look the part, so they figure they belong in the neighborhood, right? If it's anybody who didn't look the part, security be on them and tackle them and all this type of stuff. And um, that's what they expected to occur. But I think it also had to do with the fact that, like, a lot of these celebrities had a lot of, you know, kind of <clears throat> sketchier things going on in their lives. They were kind of like partying, party girls, or, you know, Lindsay Lohan had all those, like, you know, DUIs and all that stuff. So the people, like, the, the group that got there, it's not weird that they would be there because, like you said, they fitted the part. And it kind of, like, I guess they didn't suspect that there was anything weird because it wasn't like, you know, they kind of hit up their stuff really well too. Um, except, you know, when they started getting more gutsy and they started taking like paintings and crap. So it was, um, but you know, I, I think, yeah, like, I don't know. I think it's just the fact that it's, it's like the, it, it also emphasizes a little on how a bit on the, like security and privacy of celebrities being kind of really, there's too much exposure of their private life that other people can easily prey yeah. on. 
Because, I mean, Mark's looking up the addresses on Google. So it's not like the addresses yeah. are, are even well hidden. I suppose even bef- if this was made before Google, they'd just have to look in, like, well, those are maps of the stars. Um, as I said, just a bus tour tells you where everyone lives. So it's, um, as I say, it's amazing the fact that these celebrities, they live these lives that are so in the in the sort of outcome view, they don't think anyone's going to touch them. As you said, they live in a gay community. And with these kids, it's interesting as well, the fact that they're, they're from privileged lifestyles because they go to this really sort of posh high school, which means that they can blend into these sort of celebrity gated communities. And normally, for if as I said, normally when we look at these high school kids, they want to have like the famous status of these rich kids. But here, couplers like taking this unique view that even the rich kids, it's not enough what they have already. They want more. They want all, what they see the celebrities having, and they see that as being what it is. And be, because there's such morons, this group, as soon as they start seeing stuff, they're flashing it on Facebook and gaining like Facebook yeah. lives. They're holding like. Uh, tabletop sales for all the stuff that they don't want to sell and nobody seems to be questioning like where they're getting all these like Chanel handbags and things from so I mean the group themselves like, Whoa, did you actually warm to any of these characters because as, as I said already I think the couple here really shows them as just being like a, a group of stupid teens um, she <laughs> takes a very sort of standoffish standoff view with how the story's told there's no sort of like attempt to redeem any of these characters she just basically presents the facts as they are and just lets us play onlookers as these kids go about these robberies so I was I was interested obviously to see if anyone actually warned to any of the members of this group at all I think she tried to make the boy Mark kind of warm um, she kind of followed him and she has mentioned in a few interviews that you know where do you start when everybody is you know unlikable so I think she started with the boy, him being a bit of a misfit, coming in from somewhere else. Uh, I think there's also been a, a condemnation on homeschooling. Uh, the girls were homeschooled. He was homeschooled the last place he was. Um, he comes into school. Everybody's kind of being mean to him. Um, then Rebecca's a bit nice. He talks about how he didn't feel as good-looking as he should be, some low self-esteem. And uh, the girls kind of took him in to make him feel a bit of belonging. And he's always the kind of guy saying, we got to go, we got to go. Um, no, you can't take Paris's dog, all this type of stuff. So I think she was trying to make him the conscience of the group and maybe someone you could warm to a bit. Because he never had any friends, and now he thinks that, Rebecca, if you're my only true friend, you're my best friend. Yeah, for sure. I mean, like, Mark is kind of like the person who keeps the group in check, right? They. That all these girls, they kind of get a bit ahead of themselves as they get in these houses. They find all these things they want, and they want to take these really absurd things that are just going to set them off, you know, right away. And, you know, it kind of gives him that sense of security that, you know, when he's there, he might be really naggy. And at the same time, he has that kind of sense of, like, oh, when is staying too long? You know, oh, we need to go, we need to go. And he kind of, like, is, like, the mother of the pack. And and then it kind of like at the same time, it also puts him in the spotlight because it, it, it's kind of crazy that, you know, he's the one who makes sure they don't get caught. And he is actually the person that gets noticed the first and kind of like leads the police on, or the security or whoever was watching that footage onto onto, you know, these people. Yeah, it's you would think that for someone who's obviously the most switched on group, who's able to sort of have those still rational thoughts that no one ever thinks that, you know, maybe invest in a balaclava or something. 
that they just go in wearing hoodies and expect that to be like the greatest disguise possible. And then they're surprised that, oh, wait, we've been caught on CCTV. It, it comes as a big surprise yeah, but, uh, to them. It's it's also really weird that, you know, we were watching this movie and I was thinking to myself, it was, it was kind of crazy that, you know, there's that um, camera outside, but they don't ever suspect that there's a camera in yeah. the house. And that's that's kind of like a really weird thing that, you know, like their security is with the outside, but not with the inside of the house, um, especially as they, you know, they're getting more like, you know, there are there's already what the Adriana or something that was already had already said that, oh, there's these people who have broken to my house um, and like, oh, people, you should be careful about blah, 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 you know, about these people being around. And then, you know, there's still but I think it's also the fact that, you know, they mention about how because they haven't been caught that they're starting to kind of like feel secure and feel like they won't be caught. So they're doing things a little bit more boldly than they usually when they first started. Yeah. It's almost in many ways that they feel that they went by having these items that they suddenly become like celebrities themselves. Cause they start living this like false celebrity lifestyle and they're, they're flashing cash, they're hoovering up Coke and just generally going to all the, clubs and locations that they see the little idols uh, going because you see that uh, footage of Audrina and they're like oh where'd you go and she's like oh I go to this bar and I go to this bar and then the next scene is basically them at the same bars and they sort of like we're now part of the same clique even though you haven't earned your way into this clique you basically just stolen the lifestyle um, and it as I say it felt very much like how many Korean spring breakers I mean this is youth live through excess and very little damn given to the consequences. There's no forward thinking of, oh, we should be covering our tracks. We should be, you know, putting some space between robbers. It's sort of like, oh, I'm bored. Let's go and rob somebody. And it's sort of like, and as it, as it goes on, just how blatant and blasé they get about what they're doing. The fact that they go back to Paris Hilton's house three times when you would think it's enough just to go there once, but not just to keep going back every time just to go and steal more stuff. I think it also shows how much stuff she has, mm. though, that she doesn't even miss it. She doesn't. And, I mean, this is Paris Hilton's actual house, the film shot in. Right. Uh, so we get to see, like, her party room, and uh, Coppola gets to work in her third film with Paul dancing in, so good for her. Um, but I, I love the fact that they shot on location at many of the sort of celebrities' houses. In particular, I mean, Paris Hilton is sort of, like, the main one. And it adds this sort of sense of realism and reality to it. And I mean, Coppola said that she was like very restricted on what she showed them prior to like doing the scenes because she wanted to film those like those true reactions of like surprise and and awe of what they're actually seeing. And suddenly, when you look, as you said already, Paris Hilton's got so much stuff that she doesn't actually doesn't seem to miss it. Um, nor mention the fact that someone's been clearly messing around with her stuff. So. Is, are we to assume the maid goes in and tidies it and assumes that Paris has been been living a slobbish lifestyle, or are we just? In... Well, I mean that that's probably the assumption behind it. Of you know, there's got to be some kind of you know, like the all these celebrities that get broken into, they don't really notice it except for you know one, and that and and that you know that comes to show you know just not only like how much they possess, but just how. I guess how unimportant all this stuff is while these girls, they look at everything in these houses and they're like, Oh my God. Oh, Chanel. And then, Oh, this is a Birkin bag. And you know, they just like freak out over everything. And then as they 
find more of these secret compartments. They find all these like expensive jewelry and things like that. And they're really fascinated by it. Uh, you know, while, while, you know, like these people just, these celebrities just don't seem to notice it. And I think that's what kind of pushes them to, to go for it more because it's easy to get away with. And, and like, you kind of get addicted to, you know, the fame and maybe the adrenaline rush of doing these Mm. things. Yeah. And it's also how rare they're there as well. Like, um, you know, Paris is in Vegas or they're in Europe or they're in New York or they're they're rarely there. In one way, I kind of wish that we got to see more of the other other properties because the other properties were kind of shot from afar. I mean, I think it's the Orlando Broom or it's the Audrina property that we get the the view where we're pretty much looking out over the valley of the the shot of them going room to room, and in that glass yeah, house, yeah. And it, um, it as I said, it kind of like makes you want to go. Oh, can we go on another like criminally charged edition of uh, Through the Keyhole with these people? And just like see what the inside of these celebrity houses are, but the actual shot of the valley—I mean, it originally wasn't going to be done. I mean, Coppola was all ready to drop it because they were just running out of time for production. And it's the one that, um, as I said, a director of photography rarely sort of fought for. And now it's like the shot that everyone's. Yeah, Harris. Yeah, Harris fought for shot for that, and that's like, that's the best scene in the movie because yeah, it's kind of taken from the security footage. Actually, it has that green tinge and. It's silent. All you hear is the coyotes and kind of the the night air, and it's the really crickets, well done. Yeah. <laughs> it's the best shot in the movie, almost. Yeah, it is. It is definitely. I think that's that's one of the shots that I I think that her keeping it in is the best because it also defines her because that's you know one of those still shots that's really memorable in kind of like a signature of 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 her as a director. Um, like all her movies have this kind of still shot instead of you know like. Everything else is very frantic. I think she does it like once or twice with those, like as we go through, where like it's more just a still shot and or just a quiet shot. And these shots are, I think, the ones that best define it because you know there's only so much you can watch of them like rummaging through these expensive houses and going crazy with a ton of music, and then it becomes this really good contrast that gives it style. Yeah. So what do we think about Emma Watson trying to uh, shed the Hamarni kid image and show she's an adult? Um, first, a, a bit of perks, perks of being a wallflower, and then with this film. Kim? <laughs> uh, I'm all right with it. I, I, I have no, like, you know, I mean, I've only really seen Emma Watson as Hermione, and I didn't see perks of the wallflower, even though I have it. Um, but uh, I think it's okay. I... I mean, she really represents like a very like the way she talks and the way she acts and stuff like that. She I think she really embodies that kind of like um, ditzy rich girl style, like kind of a bit moronic. Um, like, I guess how we would usually portray uh, kind of like a dumb blonde sort of yeah, idea. Yeah, like, uh, um, accent and. Yeah, yeah, like, she she really embodies it well. I mean, uh, at, at some point I did find like. I did find it was it was very it felt I felt a bit over at times, but then I've never talked with anyone from LA, so I I don't know I don't know what the definition of it is. Um, how about you, Owen? Uh, yeah, I mean Emma Watson here, obviously trying to shed, as you said already, she's trying to shed the kiddie image, and it was one of that sort of period. I mean, she tried to get the go with the dragon tattoo, so she got that stupid pixie cut, um, and then did Pex Wallflower, which is just oh my god, that's just. This tosh, um, 
I mean, as I said, I find these attempts for her to be a an adult actress. I think the comparison I like to draw is the fact that myself in the stunt game, we went out and built a slip and slide out of serrated blades into a bathtub of barbed wire and salt. And I think that experience was a lot more enjoyable than watching Emma Watson try and act. And it's almost laughable, the fact that they were talking about her getting Oscar buzz for this film. Because she's fucking appalling. And the fact that her character is the one that gets off um, is just like even more annoying because you want, of all the characters you want to go down, she's the one I really wanted to like just go down hard because she just does not give a toss about celebrity. It's all like, oh, look how great I am. Look, I'm living this sort of celebrity lifestyle. And it's very much fueled by her mother's sort of teachings. Whereas you can kind of sympathize, and I use it very sort of loosely with like Rebecca and. Um, mark because i said they're trying to find a lifestyle they're trying to find a find this soul false sense of celebrity so you can kind of understand where they go and while they obviously go off the deep end as well it's she's the one at the end is sort of like oh yeah i want to you know maybe rule a country one day and i this is this is all karma this is a real karmic wake-up call and it's sort of like oh just shut up (laughs) <laughs> I swear to go and slap her for this sort of like new age nonsense that she's prattling out and yet we see her there and she's got like the TV deal and she's got the book deal and like she's been completely unaffected by this whole situation it's just like been this absolute lark for her um, I mean as I said that combined with the grating performance that Watson gives here um, just sort of like only made me more infuriated by this character but that's based on real facts, though. Um, Sophia Coppola says she got this all from the notes from the journalist. This is what these kids actually mm. said. Um, like the one, I forget which one it was, when she's being arrested and asked, well, no, it was Rebecca. Did you talk to all of the uh, of the celebrities? And they go, yes. And then she's like, even Lindsay Lohan? Yes. Well, what did Lindsay say? Like she's sitting in a police room being interrogated, facing jail time, and her first thought is, well, what did Lindsay say? Lindsay knows who I am? Like, this type of thing. So, they're all like that, and that's facts of what they said of how they really were. Yeah, and it's... I think this is the problem again with the film. The film gets so caught up in, like, the rush of this uh, this crime spree that by the time we get to them suffering the comeuppance uh, for their crimes, it's very much glossed over. It's like a... It's almost like a footnote at the end of the film, and that's the thing which really sort of bugs me about the film is the fact that we don't get this comeuppance. It's um, we get to see him go on this this jaunt, and it's sort of like very much easy to uh, dismiss the actual, you know, repercussions of their actions. It's like, oh yeah, they got caught. It's, that's I get what you know. I get what you're saying, but at the same time, I think that the movie does a decent job in the sense that like. It really takes, like, you know, we go from, I think there's, they just spend a lot of time on the whole buildup of just the crimes being committed. All these robbery, all these burglaries and all that stuff that are going on. But at the end, I think it's really a definition of character, which we don't really get as much in the beginning um, during these burglaries. Like, we have a good idea of who they are. But when we get, like, when they get caught and those moments of, you know, what they're saying and who whose stance is where, you really see, like, what is important to them and who these characters really are. And I think that, you know, this is where the movie is 
becomes really fun. I would have really liked to see, like, more of, like, the sentencing of how all this happened, because, like, it really dived into less than, you know, less shallow than the rest of the film of how these, these characters really were. Like, here we get an idea, oh, well, Rebecca is really just, you know, she she's going to throw everyone under the bus, and she's going to pretend like this is really, she's not the ringleader at all. Whereas, you know, Mark is kind of like, oh, you know, trying to, you know, round things out and not be like, oh, you know, it's not, you know, we didn't really trying to kind of logic of like why he did that. Whereas like, you know, Nikki is the other side of the spectrum where she's just enjoying the spotlight and she's really trying to use the spotlight in her favor and kind of like feel like. And make people kind of feel like she's the victim at some time. Oh, it's just, uh, yeah, that was the thing. She's, like, making herself out to be the victim, yet we constantly see her, like, especially during the Paris story, where she's robbing for her for father's apartment. Um, I forget where it is now, but she's, like, they're stealing paintings and stuff. And you're thinking, nobody's, like, going to stop and say, you know, you're taking it too far. I mean, the only time anyone sort of questions what they're doing is when one of them tries to steal Paris Hilton's dog. Uh, because, you know, that might be a little too noticeable, but apparently uh, stealing paintings off the wall and fucking with her stuff isn't apparently noticeable, so. It's, um... Ah, oh, it's... Yeah, it just, as I said, it just felt like... while the, I think this is a problem when you base things off real life. You don't always get the endings that you want for, for things, you know. Sometimes bad people go free and we're forced to endure even worse performances from... Emma Watson, so... <laughs> you're, you're, we're, we're never going to be able to settle this Emma I Watson think we, thing. Um, but... Yeah, I think Emma Watson is sort of like... I just don't get the appeal of Emma Watson much like Kira Knightley. She's this very sort of bland English actor that we seem to churn out that apparently can't do an American accent so now just puts in dire performances that somehow still gets her jobs, but... You know, I suppose the uh, Harry Potter dollars can carry a long way. So I was kind of glad that when she obviously went on to the Beguiled, that this is sort of like a one and done, that Watson didn't become a reoccurring character unlike Kirsten Dunst, who actually has a cameo in this film, which I've missed like the first two mm-hmm. or three times I've seen this film. I didn't realize. Oh, yeah, really? she, I mean, it's a blink and you miss it before because she's only in the club. She's not like she has anything to say, but um, you're constantly like looking out for those char- those actors who appear throughout Coppola's work. And obviously Dunst being like one of the main ones. So how I missed her cameo until this last uh, viewing of it, I'm not too sure. But I was kind of like, it's like, oh, there she is. But certainly, I don't know. I kind of, I kind of just expect something like something like that, especially if we're talking about like a movie about fame and famous yeah. people. Then there's going to be some way she's going to put, put Kirsten Dunst in because she's worked with her so many times already. Um, so, you know, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I think, you know, if, if it's anything, Coppola has really been diving into the concept of fame a ton. And, and if we talk about, you know, like just in comparison, I find this movie is really comparable to Marie Antoinette, but executed much better. Okay. I don't know if you feel that the same way. Um, I mean, I certainly was going to bring up the comparison to Marie Antoinette. I mean, both are about people amassing nice things. Uh, whereas... Yeah, and and there's also those comparable shots, right? Those comparable shots of, you know, of, you know, just clothes and, and constant, like, those shots like that that are revolving, just like Marie Antoinette has all her elegant food and all her, you know, all that all that stuff that goes by. 
And she does that same kind of shot that goes through, and that, that I think that's the most comparable in that sense. I think the one key word that sort of marks out the difference though, between the gang and Marie Antoinette is the word bling, as to the fact that mm. for these kids, it's, it's just about amassing things um, that, you know, give them sort of status and, you know, highlight, uh, set them apart from their from the from the other kids in the school whereas Marie Antoinette appreciates things for what they are she knows that they're nice but she also appreciates things for, for what they are they're not just meaningless things to her so even when we have like the scenes of her like amassing dresses and gorging on cake and stuff there's appreciation for what things are it's not just oh I can amass things uh, which is obviously the case with these kids where they just have so much stuff they've just got wardrobes and uh, drawers just full of stuff that they've amassed and the fact that they're just giving stuff away pretty much when if once it fails to once it's appeal, once it's luster wears off whereas with Marion Chanel there was never that feeling it was always just about you know I have power and I have status and I have nice things and I you know I like to uh, I, pre- I have this appreciation for these things so but I don't know about yourself, Nathan. I mean, did you have any sort of comparisons really between the character of Antoinette and, and the bling ring? I guess from my point of view, I would say there's a little bit in there of the being the self-absorbed okay. part and a bit of, uh, you know, selfishness and disregard for others. Um, that did come up in the talk that she did that I listened to before this, that the comparison between the two movies. And uh, that was kind of was her take. That was uh, Sophia's take on it. Is that's where she saw the similarities, and I can kind of see that as well. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I gotta agree with that. <laughs> um, just want to take a, a quick moment to talk about the soundtrack here, because a lot of the soundtracks have been very kind of ambient on her other films. I mean, obviously, Marie Antoinette had the sort of post-punk and new wave soundtrack there, but sort of mixing it up mm-hmm. and. With this one, it's uh, it's a lot more hip to the young people. I found and it's really screwed up my recommendations on Spotify listening to the soundtrack. So, thank you, Sophia, for that one. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, do do we like the soundtrack for this one? Because as I say, it's a real change of pace for it. Even though obviously her husband um, Mars's band Phoenix um, do submit a track on here, they did the track Bankrupt. Um, I mean, what do we sort of think of? I mean, it's very sort of like hip hop focused, and you got people like Azealia Banks and Kanye West and um, Two Chains, which apparently is a person. Yeah, Two Chains. Two Chains has been on YouTube a lot, <laughs> so I've seen him in ads on YouTube okay. lately. Uh, if not, I wouldn't have known him before. Uh, but yeah, no, um, I I think the soundtrack is all right. It matches the the tone of the movie. Yeah. Um, it's not, you know, my choice of of stuff to listen to, but um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that crown on the ground opening track. What a <laughs> that's one to really knackier speakers. Well, that one that's a track by yeah. Sleigh Bells, and uh, Sophia was saying she played that on the set a lot to kind of set the mood, and she was listening to that when she was writing the opening titles and. That's the kind of tone she wanted to set. And then the other songs of more of a hip hop beat was what she thought or figured that, you know, 16 year old kids would be listening to driving around in their convertibles at summertime going to and from parties. So that's where she got all all that and got all that inspiration from. Yeah, definitely. And you can see them the like, especially with the girls as they're like driving around, they're living this sort of like fake 
sort of gangster lifestyle. They're sort of emulating the hip hop sort of stars, and it's not a life, as I say, it's not a lifestyle I ever sort of leave. I mean, when I was in college, I was always a skater punk, so it was just all all the bands I listened to were just scruffy little sods and stuff. So I never had had any appeal to like to bling things up or live this sort of like gangster lifestyle, which sort of plays in very much into what they're doing because I said they're driving around in their uh, SUVs and just constantly like sing along to rap music and stuff. So I think it's, it very much complements it, even even if it is a lot. Uh, it's a bit of a bit of a, uh, a change of pace, as I said, because with Lost in Translation and Virgin Suicides, we have very sort of ambient soundtracks with them like Air. And they were never like, so they were always sort of like um, there, but they never sort of overtook the film. Whereas with these ones, they're very sort of present and in your face, and it's sort of like the very um, sort of like a aggressive thing. And it's kind of, I did we actually posted up onto our Facebook group and Twitter today. We asked people what their favorite soundtrack was in a Sofia Coppola movie, and I mean, do you guys have a favorite soundtrack that you've listened to in the Coppola film? Or well, mine would be Lost in Translation. That that um, that kind of piece that they play all the time, that main kind of melodic yeah. piece. Like I went to a pier, I'll be playing that all the time, that melodic piece. And, you know, Elvis Costello and all that, I, I'd say Lost in Translation would be my favorite soundtrack. Yeah, I, I, I really like the, I don't like Marie Antoinette as a film, but I think that the soundtrack is really good. Like, I really like that, you know, that, that punk style and that sort of like the, the music that was playing in it really, you know, gave it a lot. Um, it, it would be something that I would listen to, uh, you know, and, and, you know, it, although it didn't really fit the film, but it gave a contrast. Right? Well, I mean, it's funny you used to say that because I was like, when I was like listening back to that, that episode, um, and we talk about obviously the music in there and you've got like Andrew and the Ants who themselves were very much like a homage to that Marie Antoinette period and it's kind of funny the fact that Sophia takes the sort of inspiration to use that sort of music because as I said of Adam and the Ants their look and it's like oh wow they're dressed as this wouldn't it be funny if we'd had like a whole world set where these guys aren't doing an homage but they're actual a real sort of uh, band of this sort of times and it gave her that sort of freedom, but I think at the same time the fact she wasn't trying to tell a strict history lesson in that movie really gave her such freedom, and I, I mean I liked the fact that it, it didn't just do traditional sort of classical music, I felt that so mm-hmm. those moments exactly. really outshined the moments when she was doing a more traditional sort of soundtrack on on that film um, Absolutely. in terms of my favourite soundtrack I mean, I mean I really love Air's um, soundtrack for Virgin Suicides, it's one of the few soundtracks you can listen to, as ambient as it is without having the film to go along with it so I think we're to sort of hung jury on what, I've, what the best Sophia co- soundtrack is so. <laughs> it's good, so we have support going back to your, yeah. sorry, going back to your comments about no consequences, if you're talking about driving around, I remember that scene of Chloe when she she's drunk and gets in the accident, yeah and she gets booked, and her only comment is, "Oh, I'm fine. I'll have to be picking up trash now for the rest of my life." <laughs> like that, that's like the car's ruined. Your friend's gonna been killed, and you know that's her takeaway. I have to now pick up trash for a while. So that goes. That reminded me of your no consequence uh, comment. Yeah, I mean at the same time though, the fact she's coming from a privileged lifestyle already, so it's not like if we went and got DUI and then, you know, our job prospects are screwed because, you know, we haven't got wealthy parents to sort of bail us out and, you know, provide us with a trust fund or anything. We 
have to rely on good behavior so we can get good jobs and be good to upstanding citizens and she's sort of like oh you know i just have to go and pick up trash but you know my lifestyle is not going to really be affected i'm not going to have any sort of part of my life um affected by the results of this and i think it's that sort of blase attitude that sort of really carries through especially when they get into like the crimes it's sort of like oh i'm here just, we're just here we're just having fun committing robberies this is no big deal um and you can certainly see in like characters like nikki when she's there and like the cat ears and stuff and doing stupid cat noises and stuff and it's all like oh, you people really have no fear that you know security or the cops could be like busting in at any minute you're just they're partying up in paris hilton's party room raiding through her underwear drawer and just stealing jewelry and anything else you can get your hands on and i think the only time there's any sort of like concern of what they're doing is when they find the gun and accident it accidentally goes off yeah um and even yeah. that's not really much warning. And and it doesn't even it doesn't even go off at the place, right? It goes off afterwards after they steal it. And there's like that I think that was the one moment in the movie where you actually like I mean, as a viewer, there's like they obviously had no fear of anything going on because they were just messing around, but there was that fear of like that idea that oh well, something bad is gonna happen at this point and and you just kinda keep waiting for it to happen. Cool. Um, okay, further watching, if you do obviously like Bling Ring, where do you go from here? Because I've got a few ideas, but um, I'll throw it out to you guys first. Well, I think you already mentioned it. Uh, Spring Breakers mm. is kind of the thing that first comes to mind for me. That same kind of, um, you know, doesn't matter what we're doing. We're just out doing things and we'll care about the consequences later. That was kind of my first thought of a movie to pair it up with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that was a uh, that was on my list as well. Uh, so uh, yeah, and then I mean I had Marie Antoinette, and then I also have um, the recently released uh, the 2019 The Fanatic <coughs> with John Travolta, which really like emphasizes on like the whole concept of celebrities and just you know celebrity obsessions kind of gone wrong. Uh, yeah, so that's my my take on it. This <laughs> is not how that turned out because. The trailer had me for like the first, I don't know, 10 minute, 10, 10 uh, seconds or so. And I see like John, John, uh, John Travolta's performance. And I was like, wow, that's, you know, that's a real sort of comedian's performance. And then we get to the, like the hard candy scenes of him torturing his actor idol. And it's all like, oh, I've lost interest now. So I'd be interested to actually know if, it, if it's better than the trailer. I didn't see the trailer. I just kind of went in okay. blind. Um, cause it was, uh, an advanced screening at Fan Expo. Um, but I mean, it's not, you know, it doesn't have, it's not heavy on the hard candy yeah. part. Uh, it, it's very much like the finale-ish that's kind of there. Um, but you know, I mean, John Travolta does a really great performance. I'm sure people are going to talk about it because he does play like an autistic fan, so there's a lot of things he does where, you know, it's more of the shock factor, but, you know, um, it, it's, you know, I don't want to ruin the movie too much. So <laughs> I feel like it's still worth going to see. And it's very, you know, uh, it, there's a lot of things that parallel with this film in the sense like, you know, it's easy to, you know, find where celebrities live and it's easy to, you know, break in and that sort of stuff. Fantastic. Um I think, again, free for free, Spring Breakers, the Disney princess has gone bad. I think uh, Spring Breakers, while it's certainly not 
the easiest film and it's certainly not the most coherent at times Harmony Quinn Spring Breakers is certainly a good one to pair with this um, I did also put Perks of Warflower if you as I say if you want to see more Emma Watson it's mm. problematic and has Emma Watson's character in that film um, f- making out that David Bowie's Heroes is like some obscure indie rock track so make of that what you will um on a more sort of positive note, if you want to see sort of more teen crimes, uh, especially teen crimes going wrong, check out Mean Creek. Uh, it's uh, about a group of teens who decide to off the local bully. And on the more extreme things, definitely check out uh, Larry Clark's uh, Bully, which is, uh, again, a group of uh, teens deciding to off their local bully. Uh, but it goes into a lot more extreme territory and certainly a lot more oversexed as all Larry Clark's films are, but uh, definitely if you if you want to see more teen crime stories, those are the ones that uh, I would definitely go and check out. Um, right before we go, we do actually have a voicemail because on the la- on our Marion Internet show, we did actually put it out to Vern over at Cinema Recall, who'd voiced his love and admiration for um, Sophia Coppola's Marion Internet, and uh, you know we asked him to send us his thoughts, and he's very much obliged to us with it. So. Uh, we're going to play our voicemail from Ben now and uh, hear what he has to say about Marianne Schnett. Hello, Elwood and Kim of the Movies and Tea podcast. It's your friend, The Vern, here to talk about Sofia Coppola and mainly why I love Marie Antoinette. And I apologize if I'm late on this. Um, I don't know if what I say will convince you. I'm trying to convince myself of these things, but what I love most about Marie Antoinette, it is the visuals. I mean, the movie starts off right away with uh, a, a pure good rock star, Nature's Not In It by Dana Four, and that just really sets you up on the tone. Like, this is not going to be your normal period movie. I mean, all the music in this is contemporary. Even some of the songs you think that are classical are actually contemporary. There are a few tracks by electronic artist Aphex Twin in this. Uh, they're the same cat who did the song Come to Daddy. Yeah, they have a few little classical style jams in this, which I think is really kind of cool. Um, yeah, there's a few other uh, actual real period classical music in this but it does have a very much a modern soundtrack i see for it's two hour runtime you're probably gonna maybe find maybe three pieces of actual real classical music but the rest of it is all modern songs and i love it the soundtrack here is just brilliant um i want to say lance accord cinematography is really good and i would even put it up against uh John Alcott's cinematography for Barry Lyndon. Um, Barry Lyndon is my other favorite costume drama feature. That's one I can watch, you know, multiple times. Well, not quite well, multiple times. That movie's a three-hour-long feature, but very close to that. Um, very cool thing, the costume designer of Marie Antoinette is the same costume designer for uh, not only Barry Lyndon, but The Shining, and um, the uh, Life of Quark of Zuzu, and also the Grand Budapest Hotel, and her name is, I'm going to mess this up, I know I am, it is Melina 
Canarero. So yeah, I think that's kind of cool as well. Um, now, I think all the actors in this are fun. I do like the fact that in this feature, Kristen Dunst, this is this is a teen movie, and Marie Antoinette in this one, you gotta understand that she is coming into this world she knows nothing about, and she's a teenage girl, and suddenly she's given all these powerful things. And it seems kind of weird because she is 14 and she's meant to breed with this man that she doesn't really know, doesn't really have a connection with, and yet she is meant to provide an heir. And I think the reason why everyone is watching her, like get dressed and everything, or even watching her give birth is because uh, the queen is the people's property. I know it's kind of weird to say of people thinking about people as being properties, but she is. She is the states, the country's property, and they want to make sure that if the new ruler of the land is going to be born, they should have the right to see that. All right, because uh, it is their their it's their it's her kingdom, but uh, they have to see everything. So yeah, that's my take on that. Um, I do agree with you that after the big party sequence with like the costume ball, the mask, uh, the movie does fall apart a little bit. It does slow down, uh, but yet I still think the movie is just gorgeous to look at, and I don't mind if nothing else is going on because I just enjoy watching Lance Accord's, uh sorry, Lance Accord's cinematography on that. So yeah, I've, I've really got no other things to say about it. I know I probably really didn't convince you much, uh, but I just think it's a movie about a teenage girl and a teenage boy set to rule a kingdom that they really have nothing about, they know nothing about really ruling a kingdom. Uh, they're expected to provide this heir and be a couple uh, and also uh, help out with the uh, a war that's going on and then, but Marie Antoinette's also like this young girl who has feelings and a life and everything like that too. And does she make mistakes? Sure. Uh, but I think this movie was trying to show her inner feelings and thoughts and feelings and whatnot. And I think the a lot of the modern songs really help to evaluate that aspect of her life. Um, but as uh, Ed was said before, it is a food porn movie. So that's all I'm going to say. Um, now, as far as other Soulfield Copa features, because I'm not quite sure exactly what episode you're going to feature this on, I do think that after Marie Antoinette, her movies get a little bit more difficult to enjoy. Well, that's not really fair, because uh, I actually really enjoy Okay, so listen to this right now, because I know you want to hear this. You want to hear what my top five Soulfield Copa movies are. And I know I tweeted about this, but... My order is not going to be the same as what I said before, alright? So here it is. Uh, uh, number one is, of course, Marie Antoinette. Uh, number two is Lost in Translation. I do think that movie is really good. I love the chemistry between Bill Murray and Scarlett Johansson. I think it was got like, a great soundtrack, great visuals. Uh, I gotta say, at uh, number three, uh, it's probably going to be The Virgin Suicides. Yes, um, I just, it, it's a movie that is set in the 70s, but it also looks like it was made in the 70s. It's got this great soundtrack from Air, 
but it feels like a very much a legitimate movie that was made during that time. And I don't know what they did with the cinematography or the costumes, but it's a movie that looks like it came from that era. So I really do like that one a lot. Um, and then uh, next on the list after the uh, version Suicides has got to be The Blade Ring. I know a lot of people don't give this movie much, much credit, but I think it's actually pretty fun. I think Emma Watson is really good in this, uh, hysterical, uh, it's probably, it may be, uh, her most, I guess, I want to say, mainstream attempt, even though the movie didn't do that well, but it's her attempt at trying to do a commercial feature, and you realize that she's not good at doing commercial features, but fuck it, I enjoyed it, um, and then... Next up, I would say, is uh, that Bill Murray special, the very Murray Christmas special. It's fun. I do enjoy it, though. I mean, hell, you got Bill Murray again, and you got a, uh, a great cast of other fun individuals all doing Christmas covers. Paul Schaefer, Michael Sarah, George Clooney. Uh, Miley Cyrus actually doing a really good job on that one as well. I'm kind of surprised. Uh, Rosita Jones, Jenny Lewis, Chris Rock. Yeah, it's a good one. And then after that, I would probably say uh, The Beguiled. Uh, the Beguiled is good. I just wish they didn't market it as a horror film because the trailers made it seem like it's going to be this gory body horror type of feature. And I was really excited to see Sofia Coppola do a movie like that, but that's not really the story at all. It's a gothic story. But that's not the same thing of saying that it's a horror story. It's a gothic thriller, not a horror story. Um, and then I gotta say, in probably last place, is um, Somewhere. Which is just there. Uh, I mean, don't get me wrong. I like Elle Fanning in the movies. I think she's great. And I think that Steven Dorff is fine. Um... I don't hate the movie. There's a lot of great moments that I really like. Uh, there's a moment where two strippers are dancing to Foo Fighters' Hero Song, and the images of that is actually really cool. Gosh, I am rambling on too much here. So, but anyways, thank you guys. Uh, I, I I enjoyed all the episodes, or I'm going to enjoy all the rest of the episodes. But it's late, and I'm going to bed now. So, good night, everybody. Good night. Uh, well, thank you, Ben, for obviously sending that in. Uh, of course, if anyone has got any thoughts that they want to share on any of Sophia Coppola's films, please let us know. You can, uh, as I said, if you want to be like Ben and send us in a voicemail, you can. You can also get in touch with us on Facebook and Twitter, as well as our um, blog, which is moviesandteapodcast.wordpress.com. Um, Norman, thank you for joining us. Uh, where can people come and find you if they want to uh, come and check out your stuff? Yeah, um, I have my own blog, um, ramping up my TIFF coverage right now as we speak, and that's at Flick Hunter, um, which is flickhunter.blogspot.com, and uh, the best place to find me on Twitter is at McStay, M-C-S-T-A-Y, one, two. Very nice. And uh, Kim, next episode's our last episode, so where do we go? <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, so for the final Sofia Coppola film, we are looking at 2017's The Beguiled, uh, which, you know, yet again, we have Kirsten Dunst returning, we have Elle Fanning returning, and we have the lovely Nicole Kidman. Um, as, you know, we go into the American Civil War time, so... Yeah, a first time watch for myself and a remake of a Clint yeah, Eastwood movie. So I'm really interested to see uh, how this plays out as our last film of the season. We'll also be uh, revealing our top picks, our one to burn, and our hidden gems of the Coppola filmography as well. So uh, make sure you join us for that um, then. But um, again, thank you everyone for listening. Thank you uh, to my co-host Kim. And thank you to Norman from Flick Hunter for obviously joining us once again. All right, thank you both. And uh, again, we'll be next time, back next time, finish off the season with The Beguiled. Good night. Live fast, die young, bad girls, do it well. Live fast, die young, bad girls, do it well. Live fast, die young, bad girls, do it well. Live fast, die young, bad girls, do it well. Chain hits my chest when I'm banging on the dashboard. Take you Get back Get down